Welcome to the TBE Richmond Podcast. I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On this feed, you'll hear sermons, teachings, music, conversations with guests, and so much more from us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Thanks for learning and growing with us. Um, it's hard to know where to start, how to convey um, the scope and the severity of the problem that we now face as a species on the planet. Um, there's never been, to our knowledge in the history of our planet, anything like this that has happened before. Um, and I think the question becomes, how do we respond? What can we do? Um, and how can we learn from our scriptures through a process of reparative reasoning, going to the scriptures with this problem and trying to figure out how to respond to it. And as you know, um, right now in Sharm el-Sheikh, there is COP27 going on. One of the concerns that has arisen is the issue of climate justice and the fact that the global north where we are located is producing the problem, the global south suffering because of it. Just as an example, in one year, the United States puts out as much carbon as the, as the country of Pakistan has put out in its entire history. And yet, and yet Pakistan has been suffering massively because of flooding. Um, and there is death, um, there is starvation. Um, and yet, you know, we look outside and we say, well, it's a beautiful day. So, you know what I mean? How is this happening? Because it's not, it's not real for us until it's right there all around us. But we cannot, we cannot afford to ignore this problem. We cannot afford to be complacent, apathetic. We have to do something about it. And, and personally, I think that, that what will be required is a fundamental transformation in human consciousness, in our understanding of our, our sense of community as a species on the planet and our sense of responsibility to each other, and to the environment, to everything that depends upon us and that we depend upon. So um, I thought, just to give you an idea of what, you know, how severe this problem is, this is a book by David Wallace Wells called The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. This is what you have to read to really understand what is going on. So here's what he says. I'm just going to read one paragraph. It is worse. It's much worse than you think. The slowness of climate change is a fairy tale. Perhaps as pernicious as the one that says that it isn't happening at all. And it comes to us bundled with several others in an anthology of comforting delusions. 
that global warming is an Arctic saga, that it's unfolding remotely somewhere else, that it is strictly a matter of sea level and coastlines, not an enveloping crisis sparing no place and leaving no life undeformed, that it is a crisis of the natural world, not the human one, that those two are distinct, that we live today somehow outside or beyond or at the very least defended against nature, not escapably within and literally overwhelmed by it. That wealth can be a reliable shield against the ravages of warming. That the burning of fossil fuels is the price of continued economic growth. That growth and the technology it produces will inevitably engineer a way out of environmental disaster. That there is any analog to the scale or scope of this threat in the long span of human history that might give us confidence in staring it down. Well, none of this is true. It's much worse than we think. Um, and David Wallace Wells, who is um, co-editor of the New York Magazine and now is uh, producing a regular column in um, a newsletter for the New York Times, um, goes on in the book, um, to basically debunk a lot of what we think, what we're being told um, and, 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 and tells the truth about it. Um, and you know, lays out um, possible ways that we can respond. But I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna get into the technology, I'm not gonna get into the details of what is going on. I think we all know that we are now in the midst of an existential crisis on the planet. So the question then becomes, well, what does Torah tell us about something of this nature, of this, of this scope, of this unbelievable um, implication for human existence? So um, there is the question of how do we achieve sustainable coexistence? And um, as you know that uh, we learned last week, um, Abraham and Sarah brought the, um, Abraham's brother's son, Lot, with them. Um, and um, we learn in chapter 13 of Genesis last week in Lethlecha, that Lot went up with Abraham. Um, this is after they come out, they come out of Egypt um, and they're, uh, they go up through the Negev and they settle um, in the land, um, presumably around Beersheba in that neighborhood. Um, Lot who went with Abraham, I'm reading now from chapter 13, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support them staying together. For their possessions were so great that they could not remain together. Right? They could not 
maintain a relationship together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abraham's, of Abram's cattle and those of Lot's cattle. And Abraham, Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and yours, for we are kinsmen. Is it not the whole land before you? Let us separate. If you go north, I will go south. If you go south, I will go north. And Lot looked about him and saw how well watered was the whole plain of the Jordan, all of it. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, which we're going to get to. Um, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, so Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they parted from each other. Abram remained in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the plain, pitching his tents near Sodom. But the people of stone were very wicked and sinners against the Lord. Um, so they could not work this out together. They could not figure out how to address their differences and the problems of sharing the land. And so they separated. Um, and what I'm what I'm thinking is that um, this is this is a narrative that has basically dominated our culture, right? That we acquire and then we separate. That we are in it for ourselves. And that we do, we are not responsible for each other. Um, and in the Torah portion that we read now, we read about the destruction of the cities of Stone and Gomorrah that have come to epitomize moral depravity and cruelty. Um, God's only recourse was to completely destroy them and their environs, in spite of Abraham's pleas for mercy made on behalf of his nephew, Lot. And scripture is characteristically sparse when telling us of what exactly were their failures. Just noting God's assessment in chapter 18, 20 to 21, the outrage of Stone and Gomorrah is so great, their offense is very grave. I will go down and see whether they have indeed acted as the outcry that has come to me indicates the extent of their destructiveness. And if not, I, I shall take note. In other words, God is going to go down God's self to look and see what was going on um, and was willing to relent if there were, you know, there were some positive indications, but there weren't. We don't get a lot of detail but the Midrashic sources give us a much fuller account of the hair-raising wickedness and the godlessness that characterize these cities. According to the Midrash, um, Stoam enjoyed a relatively high standard of living. We are told their land was well watered like the Garden of God, which we just, I just we talked about. That's why Lot went there. It was a beautiful place. The crops were plentiful and good. 
There was opulence, there was comfort. And that's what attracted Lot to live there. Rather than remaining together with his holy uncle in Febron. He went off to seek his own fortune. And there was plenty of money in stone. And the more money they had, the more corrupt and the more miserly they became. They did not want to share their bounty with any outsiders passing through. And they enacted laws and took great pains to repel anyone from outside. And they were not much nicer to their own people. In fact, the Midrash gives us two tales of moral women who dared to extend a helping hand to beggars and who were put to death for the compassion that they had demonstrated toward the unfortunate ones among them. The sins of, Stomites, of the Sodomites stemmed from their intense selfishness their unwillingness to part with their possessions and their lack of compassion for those in need. The mindset that characterized Stone was what is mine is mine and what is yours is yours and we will leave each other alone and we will not take responsibility for each other. The narrative of Stone was one of a focus on self-gratification and a, a refusal to recognize and respond to the needs of any other. Their society manifested social injustice and immorality, and that eventually ultimately led to its destruction. And as was made clear to Abraham by God, there were not even 10 people in stone who were not drawn deep down into this moral depravity. And the two angels who had come to Abraham and Sarah to tell them about Sarah having a child went on, their next assignment was to go to Lot and basically to tell Lot that and to tell the people of Stone that, that they're, unless they change their ways, the city would be destroyed. Um, and what happened? Well, the angels tell Lot that they have been sent to destroy the city. And Lot turns to his son-in-laws and says, get out of this place for the Lord is getting ready to destroy this city. And how did they respond? How did they respond? I, can, I won't read you the, 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 uh, the Hebrew, um, but basically the Hebrew says, to them, their father-in-law appeared to be joking. Literally, he, he appeared to be one who jests <clears throat> in the eyes of the son-in-laws. They were not ready to take this kind of a proclamation seriously. And so in spite of having been warned, there was no serious recognition of the need to change their ways and not even a single person other than Lot and his family deserved to be, to be spared. And the Midrash tells us that there had actually been plenty of other warnings 
that disaster and destruction would be the end result. There were earthquakes, there were storms, but the people of Stone just continued their evil ways. One wake up call after another, each one a little louder than the previous one, but no one took these signs to heart. The response was apathy and denial. And it was just business as usual in stone right up to the bitter end. That's, that's the potential that we are facing. That if we ignore this and we ignore each other and we ignore the needs and we don't address the injustices, then, then we will face destruction. Now, do we have a counterexample? Do we have some other story that might tell us something different? And we do, actually. Um, and, and David read about it on Yom Kippur afternoon. There was a great city of Nineveh, very similar to Stone. It was the main metropolis of the ancient Assyrian Empire located right where the city of Mosul in Mosul in Iraq is located today in the Fertile Crescent between the Tigris River where, where Nineveh was situated and the Euphrates River. It was a thriving, successful metropolis. And like Stone, their affluence, their money, and their comforts went to their heads and they too became socially and morally corrupt. And God, out of love for God's creations, even those who manifest great evil, gave them a chance to recognize their corrupted behavior and their moral depravity, a chance to change their ways. The prophet Jonah was sent to warn them and their that their destruction was imminent and that they now face the same verdict that Stone and Gomorrah had faced. Jonah walked into the middle of Nineveh and he proclaimed a mere five words. He said, In five days, Nineveh will be destroyed. But the people of Nineveh took Jonah seriously. There's a Midrash, actually, I think it was uh, David Kimchi who said that the sailors of the boat that Jonah had been on were actually Ninevites. And they came back to Nineveh and told them the story of Jonah and how the storm had subsided when Jonah was, was thrown out so that and they told them of the power of Jonah's God. And they listened. And we are told that the process began immediately with the king of Nineveh. It required a genuine change in the behavior of an influential individual to get the ball rolling. A collective doesn't all of a sudden change its ways. 
It begins at the level of individuals. And a prominent individual, even better. They have plenty of media attention. The King of Nineveh publicly took off his regal gold embroidered cloak, came down off his throne, donned sackcloth and sat on the floor in complete penitence. And given this initial public demonstration of recognizing the need to repent, the entire populace followed suit. Nineveh underwent a spiritual revolution. They recognized they had gone wrong. They recognized the problems. And they realized they needed to make good. And such an impression in the heavenly court that all stern decrees were subsequently rendered null and void. Nineveh was spared. Which, by the way, did not please Jonah one bit, but that's another story. Um, 25 years of natural disasters had no effect on Stone and Gomorrah. Yet five words from Jonah the prophet caused a total upheaval of Nineveh. From the king down to the lowliest slave in the kingdom, even, even the domestic cattle underwent a transformation. So what's the crucial difference? What is the difference between these two scenarios? In Stone, the response to warning was apathy and even scorn. Scorn directed at the messenger Lot, who finally brought a clear and a dire warning to his son-in-laws. In Nineveh, the response was one of immediate remorse and a desire to repent, a desire to make amends and to take action to address the grievous problems directly and immediately. And we are now at a similar crossroads, except we are no longer talking about a single city. We are talking about the global human community. Everyone on the planet. And we are talking about a disaster that will engulf the entire planet and threatens the survival not only of our species, but many, many others. And at the very least produce massive changes in the way that we manage to survive. So the question is, do we take the path of apathy and complacency and scorn, or do we take the path of recognizing that we have a serious problem and that we must take action? And so as Jews, what action can we take? Well, we're obsessed with Jewish continuity, right? Outside the, especially outside of Israel, the diaspora, tons of studies about how will the Jews survive? Will we survive? What's going on? You know, what is threatening our survival? Well, guess what? The climate crisis is the ultimate Jewish continuity issue. 
This is the ultimate human continuity issue. And it's also the ultimate multi-generational issue. It affects everyone, young and old. Jewish communities and Jewish institutions must bring all their people power to bear on this crisis in all ways that they have available to them. We are past the point where we can address this problem on an individual level. One vegan meal at a time, one electric drive car that we choose to drive, individual action, don't get me wrong, will help, but it will not come close to solving the problem. Individuals can begin the process, but it takes the action of the collective, initially locally, then coordinated nationally, and then hopefully across the globe. So what should we be doing? Well, I think we need to put our power behind collective systemic change. Organization by organization, community by community, bringing our power in partnership with other communities and organizations who are just as much as risk to solving our common problem of climate crisis. And might we benefit from thinking about climate change as a form of anti-Semitism that gets rid, that gets a lot of people mobilized and activated. When any Jew is threatened, we are mobilized to respond to the threat of anti-Semitism. But this is not a threat just to Jews. This is a threat to all human beings. And it's currently disproportionately affecting those more vulnerable to the impacts of weather events and those with less available economic resources to allow for recovery and rebuilding. Black and brown communities throughout our country, including those communities among whom there are those who identify as Jewish. We need to focus and focus quickly on building a Jewish movement directed towards collective political action that is coordinated nationally. And there is a national organization, as it turns out. It's called Dayenu, dayenu.org, if you're interested. They are doing this by encouraging the formation of a network of what they call Dayenu circles. People who come together locally to take action on climate, but engage through nationally coordinated efforts in Dayenu's campaigns. Such as the current campaign called Chutzpah, 2022, which was Dayenu's nonpartisan get out the vote campaign in partnership with the Environmental Voter Project. Dayenu volunteers phone, volunteers phone bank knocked on doors in the 10 weeks leading up to the 2022 midterm elections that we've just completed a little short while ago. And I think that made a difference. So what can we do here at Temple Bethel? Well, I'm proposing that we begin to think about forming a dying circle ourselves, participate in building a multi-generational Jewish climate movement locally at a moment of multi, when we are looking at multi-general divides, but this is a common, a common threat that potentially draws us together. 
it must necessarily draw us together because otherwise it will drive us apart. Climate crisis is a global existential threat and it is a totally transgenerational challenge. We need to seek solutions through reparative reasoning, going to our scripture as I just have done um, and finding the possibility of guidance and workable solutions there. One solution I think is to recognize that we need a fundamental change in ethos. We need a recovery of the ethos of our Torah, which is one of responsibility for each other and one of taking care of the earth, taking care of our environment, one of interbeing as um, the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the insight of interbeing, that everything relates to everything else, everything depends on everything else for its survival. We need to think about an ethos of cooperation, coordination, sufficiency, an ethos that brings us together around a common bond, a common need. And in the, um, as part of the um, COP27 gathering, there was actually um, a um, formal declaration signed in Jerusalem on November 3rd called the Jerusalem Interfaith Climate Declaration, signed by Jews and Christians, Muslims, and multiple, multiple other faiths that said the following, we affirm the power of religion to lead an essential transformation in human society, action, and behavior. We call upon our faithful to act in accord with our shared beliefs. The one living God created earth as one interdependent life supporting whole. All of us are called to care for, love, protect, and glory in God's creation. We shall not worship idols of greed, of consumption, and consumerism, and shall make time for sacred rest to gratefully embrace in joyous awe all of creation. Humankind shall act with justice and awareness, using and allocating Earth's resources wisely and equitably. At this crucial moment, we must responsibly protect the purity of air, soil, and water as the sources of human life and flourishing. Respect Earth's capacity for sustainable growth. Living in ecological harmony and balance, we call upon humanity to safeguard, respect, and bless all life as human and non-human biodiversity are inherently sacred. You shall not steal from others and from future generations. Honor, cherish, and respect our ancestors, the entire human family, all species, and future generations. We call upon all religions, governments, 
UN entities, civil society, as well as our own constituencies to act urgently to address the root causes of the climate crises, to repair our world based on our common spiritual and cultural values of justice and ethics. So where do we start? As I said, I think we need to begin by thinking about putting together a Dianu circle here. We'll need three co-leaders who are committed to the concept, willing to devote significant energies to related actions and a connection to the synagogue membership. We would like, ideally like to be able to identify 10 to 15 members, members of the community who can begin to engage in coordinated actions at a local, national, and international level, hoping that it will be a multi-generational effort. And anybody who's interested, you can go to dianu.org, learn about it. Um, there is a wonderful interview of the founder of Dianu, Jenny Rosen, on, on the Jerusalem Unbound, uh, sorry, the Judaism Unbound podcast. Um, and there's um, a whole web, a whole page on the web um, for organizing a Dianu circle. And I'm suggesting that that's the least we can do to begin locally to devote our energies to addressing this crisis. Shabbat Shalom. This has been the TBE Richmond Podcast. Once again, I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On behalf of all of us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia, thanks for listening. I hope this episode was uplifting and enriching. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And please rate and review us so others will have an easier time joining the conversation. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Learn more about our dynamic, warm, and passionate congregation affiliated with the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism at www.bethelrichmond.org. Until next time, shalom y'all.